Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. Chris Rufo has spent a month digging into Drag Queen Story Hours. He's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He joins us tonight. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. What did, what did you find in the month you spent looking at this? Well, I found that parents' instincts is largely correct. A lot of parents are wondering, why is an adult male uh, putting on women's clothing uh, and dancing and talking about sexual themes with other people's children, not only in libraries, but also uh, in schools and other public institutions? Uh, but they're scared to say anything because they're worried about offending the sensibility of many that administer and left-wing ideologues who police uh, speech uh, under the umbrella of LGBTQ tolerance. Uh, but the reality is quite simple. The academic queer theorists and the people who founded the Drag Queen Story Hour movement have left a trail of evidence in academic papers and manifestos that say the goal is very clear. They want to sexualize children, uh, they want to subvert the middle class family, uh, and they want to uh, basically creating a sexual connection between adult and child, which has of course long been the, the, the kind of final taboo uh, of the sexual revolution. Tucker's bosses at Fox let him do this despite the fact that LGBTQ Americans are facing a surge of hate speech, a growing number of armed protests at events featuring drag performers, and violence, all too frequently deadly violence, at a much higher rate than non-LGBTQ Americans. Thank Maricela Burgos is in Miami's Wynwood section with our top story. Craig, there is a lot of debate here, a lot of back and forth, and as you mentioned, the liquor license of this business could be revoked. That is not consistent with our law and policy in the state of Florida, and it is a disturbing trend in our society to try to sexualize these young people. The complaint addresses a kid's brunch menu that includes a mention of, quote, our fabulous show. We know in the past, the governor has talked about the importance of parents having a say when it comes to issues involving children, like his objection to mask mandates in schools and the recently passed Don't Say Gay law that bans discussion of sexual orientation and gender identity in elementary schools. It's about parental choice, uh, not government mandate. As usual, the truth doesn't matter. Absolutely not. I mean, listen, um, there's no question that Ron DeSantis, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump are all more dangerous uh, than your local. It, it was always the most basic taboo in our society. Stay away from the children creep or you will regret it. It's something that uh, people should trust their instincts on. Uh, people should push back against this. And of course, people should arm themselves with the literature and the people in their own words who have advocated for this uh, uh, deeply disturbing sexualization of children. Yeah, people should definitely arm themselves. I agree with that. This is keep the kids out of it. Here. You want to ban drag show readings to children? To my eyes, yes. Why? 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 What are you protecting? Why can we prohibit children from voting? Those under 18 from voting. Why are you banning that? Is is that free speech? Are you infringing on that performer's free speech? They can continue to exercise their free speech, just not in front of a child. Why? 
because the government does have a responsibility to protect. I'm sorry? The government does have a responsibility uh -huh. in certain instances to What's protect children. What's the leading cause of death amongst children in this country? And I'm going to give you a hint. It's not drag show readings to children. Correct, yes. So what is it? I'm presuming you're going to say it's firearms. No, I'm not going to say it like it's an opinion. That's what it is. It's firearms. More than cancer, more than car accidents. And what you're telling me is you don't mind infringing free speech to protect children from this amorphous thing that you think of. But when it comes to children that have died, you don't give a flying fuck. Deputy Prosecutor Gene Thomas insists that he is protecting the children. In an interview a decade after the Boise Gay Panic, the deputy prosecutor will reassert he wasn't going after gays. He was going after child molesters. Back in 1955, a Boise religious paper reports on the 10 recent arrests and asks, is our town breeding delinquency? A tabloid shouts, male pervert ring seduces 1,000 boys. 30 miles down the road, a local newspaper in Caldwell announces Morrill's case arrest lifts total to 11. The paper explains, a Boise Morrill's probe went into its fifth week today with the arrest of a Caldwell high school teacher on charges of immoral sex practices with boys. The teacher, arrested by Chief Brandon from Boise, has been accused of the infamous crime by Eldon Halverson, a 20-year-old man. The paper confirms the accuser is not a child, adding that the schoolteacher, quote, admitted to an act involving a Boise youth of about 20 years of age in Boise. While reporting this breaking story, the Caldwell paper practically begs everyone not to panic as they read this. They say, let's look at the situation calmly. That we will have them with us practically forever is a fact. We should begin to open our eyes to the problem. We believe that these people should be made to feel that help is available. We hear our investigations will continue until the entire mess is cleaned up. Their investigation may continue, but they won't have the entire mess cleaned up. They won't because it's an impossibility. A laudable goal, but an impossible one. Idaho, 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 Idaho. How they'll ever get in quiet, I don't know. Every day's a celebration, it's a steady occupation, being noisy out in Boise, Idaho. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Episode 3, Idaho Underworld. Thursday, December 1st, 1955. About one month since the first arrest on Halloween. The Boise Senior Youth Council and the Ada County Mental Health Association sponsor a lunch at the Boise Hotel. The topic, the Division of Mental Health wants the Youth Rehabilitation Act implemented, 
which would create programs for the youth of Boise to stay busy, make a little money, and create mental health services for those in need. But right now, there isn't any money to fund this program. Guests of the luncheon, including Police Chief Brandon, Sheriff Doc House, Prosecutor Blaine Evans, and some probate officers, all chip in their thoughts on creating programs for the kids of Boise. Chief Brandon stands up at the lunch and says, these juveniles have more disrespect for the law than he has ever seen in his 30 years on the force. He says, they think they are beyond the law, and that many of these young folks tell officers, you don't have the authority to arrest us. Chief Brandon goes on, blaming the parents for coddling them. He says almost every time they arrest a kid, their parents come down to berate us for calling them to the station instead of giving them an old-fashioned spanking. The judge attending this lunch basically agrees with the chief. He says the Youth Rehabilitation Act actually requires that any time a teenager is arrested, such as in a park bathroom, cops have to parole the minors back to their family or the State Board of Health. So there's not much police can legally do to stop bathroom cruising and hustling. A probation officer suggests that the court decide whether or not to treat each teen like an adult. They all go on trying to decide how to help or treat or punish a minor for homosexual acts until the president of the Boise Youth Council, Mrs. A.B. Jonathan, stands and demands firm action by the police and a good follow-up by the courts and public information through the press in order to show the teens that they are not beyond the law. Victor Clemens, a Boise resident, stands up and adds, they need more spankings and less psychiatric evaluation. Clemens says, we are creating a shroud of cotton around our youngsters and we are taking the backbone right out of them. And if the parents don't spank their children, then they should allow the police to do it on occasions when the need arises. And so the outspoken citizens of Boise and their police decide to tighten their grip on the town rather than create social programs to solve the problems of their youth. If the people of Boise and their police strictly enforce the rules of conformity on each other, people will be too scared to dabble in their vices Even teenage boys will feel the pressure to behave. At least, that's the theory. Historian Peter Bogue will later write in 2001, Teenage male sex workers have had a ubiquitous presence in America's urban and rural settings since at least the late 19th century. Bogue will cite many sources, including social theorist Michael Foucault, who wrote that, As heterosexuality became solidified as the norm in the 19th century Western world, people began to see any other type of sexuality as deviant. Any young person discovering their sexuality and any type of homosexuality were not only linked, they were conflated as the same kind of problem. Therefore, any homosexual in this time and place who believes their self to be sick will consider any sexual act they perform to be a secret, deviant, criminal act. Many people in this time and place misunderstand what constitutes this so-called infamous crime, this crime so disgusting even the charges are labeled with a vague euphemism. The moment anyone asks how a person could commit such a crime, 
suggesting that a person could be born wanting to commit this crime, that they might even enjoy the sexual pleasure of the infamous crime. Well, (laughs) not my child. (laughs) My child wasn't born that way. Someone must be making her that way. And because in 1955 they did not have RuPaul to blame, Boiseans focused on other figures in their children's life, one that has since become a classic person to blame, their school teachers. Below all of this, at the root of it all, sex in general is taboo. This heavily Mormon community is extremely conservative. If you're looking for vice, like sex work, or even pornography, it's going to cost you in Idaho. These things are extremely expensive here, actually much more so than in larger cities because they're harder to come by in a small town. Most people can't afford these vices anyway because the entire state has such a low rate of pay. The town also has few new jobs to offer. In fact, the entire state has little to offer its people. The people of Idaho have few options for financial growth unless they're already financially comfortable. So most people are broke. Naturally, as a result of having little to do, delinquency rates are high, have been high for a while, and will continue to rise, actually higher than New York City's delinquency rates at this time. It seems that, really, the more restrictive the social rules and the less opportunity to expand your life, the more delinquent people become. When the problems become so bad that a psychiatrist must come to diagnose the town of Boise, he'll note that life has to have its kicks, a little fun here and there, because people will find it whether it's legal or not. And if it's not, they'll pay good money for it, money teenage boys desperately want, sometimes desperately need, gay, straight, or otherwise. It's a tale as old as time. The tighter the police grip the community, the more everyone will struggle. At the Boise Hotel Luncheon, the All-Adult Youth Council and the law enforcement have little patience for examining how these boys got caught up with the men, and no interest in learning anything about the distinction between young people exploring sex and homosexuals of all ages and child molesters. Most folks just lump all these things together. They want all the queers to just be put away, and the less said the better. Just... Let's get this over with. I don't want to learn anything about these queers. Show the town homosexuality is punishable and no one will do it. And if no one sees it being done, no one will be tempted to do it. Many folks attending the lunch say this queer stuff didn't exist when they were young. So let's just quietly clean this up and move on. The following day, Friday, December 2nd, 1955, the Boise Journal writes about the gay panic. Some people feel that unless fuller information had been given, the entire mess should have been handled without fanfare. Dr. Butler, who just returned home to Idaho after three years away in Europe, he's recommended all sorts of books about homosexuality to Judge Merlin Young. The judge had asked the doctor for help. 
The judge is eager to learn as much as he can before sentencing the many men who have been arrested. But the cases are coming in so fast that he doesn't have a lot of time to learn everything before his rulings. On December 2nd, Judge Young sentences Charles Gordon, the decorator, to 15 years in prison. The next day, Saturday, December 3rd, a Caldwell High School janitor is arrested by Chief Brandon and Sheriff House. Three days later, December 6th, another Boise man is picked up. The day after that, a pianist is picked up in Parma, a tiny town 40 miles west of Boise. Soon after, a typewriter salesman is arrested. All of these men are accused of the same crime by the same person, 20-year-old Eldon Halverson. On December 9, 1955, another man, Reginald Schaefer, is also sentenced to 15 years, this time by Judge Oliver Kolsch. Schaefer has already been caught before and spent time in the state hospital in Blackfoot, one of only two mental health facilities in the entire state of Idaho. Judge Kolsch says to Schaefer, As I remember, you made an extended plea and indicated an intense desire to secure medical treatment. You said sending you to the penitentiary would do you no good. Instead, you reverted to your former practices. You made no attempt to live with your wife, and that doesn't indicate a desire for rehabilitation that you profess. Rehabilitation, in your case, is out of the question. Schaefer pleads guilty and is sent to the pen. Meanwhile, on the same day, the freight line worker, Charles Brokaw, breaks down on the stand. He says he wasn't looking for it, and he wasn't the aggressor. His attorney thinks Charles would be receptive to mental health treatment, and Dr. Dale Cornell of the state's mental health division agrees. To secure treatment, Brokaw even tells his whole homosexual story. He says at the age of 10 in Wilder, Idaho, another boy encouraged him to make contact He said he immediately found it hard to make friends. He says, I was afraid other kids would find out about that instance. He talks about other experiences at high school, explaining, I would do everything in my power to help myself. I hope I'm not too far gone. Dr. Cornell says Charles is a passive type of individual, and the doctor didn't find anything that would make me think he was a real danger to society. Charles Brokaw pleads guilty to lewd and lascivious conduct with a teenager, and prosecuting attorney Blaine Evans recommends leniency due to Brokaw's cooperation and help in other cases. Charles Brokaw named names. Two days later, Sunday, December 11th, another man accused by Eldon Halverson is picked up for questioning. His name is Gordon Larson. Gordon Larson is a clothing salesman who was working as a salesman for Fruit and Produce Company in early October when he allegedly committed a homosexual act with the 20-year-old Eldon Halverson. Larson is divorced, but engaged to be married again, and honorably discharged from the military after serving in World War II. When word gets out about this arrest, his fiancée will leave him, he'll be fired from his new job at the Mode department store, and evicted from his apartment. 
While Larson awaits his trial, he moves to Spokane to escape the hatred of Boise and try to begin his life over again. But the day after his arrest, Boise's gay panic is no longer a local scandal. Idaho Underworld. Time Magazine reports the next day, December 12, 1955. Boise, Idaho, population 50,000, the state capital, is usually thought of as a boisterous, rollicking he-man's town and home of the rugged westerner. Recently, Boiseans were shocked to learn that their city had sheltered a widespread homosexual underworld that involved some of Boise's most prominent men and had preyed on hundreds of teenage boys for the past decade. In the course of their investigation, police talked with 125 youths who had been involved. All were between the ages of 13 and 20. Usually the motive and the lure was money. Many of the boys wanted money for the maintenance of their automobiles. The usual fees given to the boys were five to ten dollars per assignation. The final paragraph of this Time Magazine piece explains the solutions Boise is implementing. This week, the shocked community and the state began a rehabilitation program for the boys. Social workers began to investigate each case to work out family problems. A citizens committee representing virtually every organization in Boise began a campaign to get after-school jobs for the boys. And a special team of psychiatrists will arrive this week from Denver at the expense of the State Board of Health to treat the young victims. In New York City, a reporter picks up the new issue of Time magazine. The short piece leaves him with a lot of questions. Firstly, he wonders, what kind of underworld can possibly exist in such a small, poor town with no known organized crime syndicate? He figures the magazine is actually describing a group of people that New Yorkers would not characterize as an underworld, homosexuals. He also wonders, if this is an operational syndicate of crime that has been carrying on for over a decade, The local police must be in on it, right? They must be aware of things like this in such a small town, and they would either be profiting from it or exposing it in order to combat the crime. Unless this ringleader theory has truth to it. The New York reporter wonders, is there really a queen of Boise's supposed gay underworld? The Queen's underworld could operate more freely if he were so high up in the state's chain of command that this syndicate is somehow untouchable. The reporter, John Garrisey, is skeptical. This Queen is highly unlikely to exist, and he thinks it's much more likely that something sketchy is going on in Boise. But two things can be true. Garrisey, the reporter, wonders how those teenagers would have kept the secret of this syndicate for so long if this existed for decades. He wonders how hundreds of parents never noticed their kids' sudden influx of cash. He wonders if there really are even hundreds of homosexually active teenagers in Boise. Garrisey doesn't forget the story. The questions remain with him for two years. Then, Garrisey will become the editor of Time magazine, where he'll pull the story from the morgue 
and looked to see if anyone ever answered his lingering questions about that witch hunt in Boise. No one ever did. He picks at his lingering questions all over again. For the following years, Garrisey will study everything he can on the known psychology of homosexuality and of child molesters. He'll interview psychiatrists and folks who worked with Alfred Kinsey. He'll also research the politics and history of Idaho. And in 1965, he will arrive in Boise and book a hotel room for an extended stay. John Garrisey will find many people who are too ashamed of their own actions to speak to him about the gay panic 10 years ago. Many won't talk to him because they just want this story to go away. Garrisey will find that even some of the court records have vanished. Many of the people who were involved in the gay panic left town a decade ago, effectively leaving their supposedly shameful history untold. But Garrisey will stick around long enough to piss off a few Boiseans, and he'll find that the Idaho Underworld story printed in Time Magazine's December 1955 issue was just the preface to quite a dark story. Now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017, and all of my bonus episodes, the Queer Serial spinoff stories, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine Meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at QueerSerial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history, I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at queer serial and at queerserial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. 
Three weeks after the original 1955 Time story, they do a follow-up. Just two paragraphs. Dr. John L. Butler, chief of Idaho's Department of Mental Health, had publicly opposed sentencing the homosexual adults to prison terms. Quote, we have to build up community supports for them, he said. Quote, one alternative might be to let them form their own society and be left alone. The Idaho Statesman newspaper announces, Doctor arrives in Boise to aid in morals problem. Dr. John Butler has years of experience studying homosexuality. After his time at John Hopkins University, he was hired by the Navy to question more than 2,000 suspected homosexuals. Much along the same lines as the interrogator who is secretly working in the Boise House on 16th Street, Fairchild's history is also in interrogating alleged homosexuals for the military, except Dr. Butler is actually qualified. When Dr. Butler worked for the Navy, he was asked to find out if these 2,000 homosexual men and lesbians have had contact with Russians. Butler didn't take firing these people lightly. Dr. Butler was raised Mormon. He's extremely familiar with the conservative and racist teachings of the Mormons. His own community wasn't allowed to express interest in arts or much literature or music. No one ever discussed sex with him as a kid. He and other kids would have to seek out answers from older siblings or other kids at school. Everyone his age, when he was a teen, was obsessed with trying to figure out sex. Dr. Butler has been on a lifelong search for the truth about sex. He's not the type to be running into the town square with a torch and pitchfork. He's here for the truth. The Statesman newspaper reports, Dr. John Butler, a psychiatrist, arrived in Boise Tuesday and immediately buckled down to the task of working on the city's morals problem. His immediate hiring on a temporary basis was precipitated by the arrest of 15 men in Boise who were charged with immoral conduct involving other adult and teenage males. Dr. Butler, on his quest for the truth, is asked by the Board of Education to interview about 60 students at Boise High School in order to help the police get control of juvenile delinquency. Of the 35 Mormon teens asked to participate in the doctor's interviews, only two of their parents give permission. Mormon parents insist that they can take care of their own issues. They don't need the government's help. Most of the teenagers tell Dr. Butler that they can't talk about sex at home. Of the delinquent teens Dr. Butler is able to interview, he finds that they all seem to have participated in homosexual acts. For kicks, or rebellion, or money... 25 cents to $10, he finds. Or another reason, Dr. Butler says, for power. One teen tells Dr. Butler that he felt important to stand there, arms crossed, while, he says, an old man gets down on his knees to blow him. The teens don't reciprocate, the doctor learns. Dr. Butler finds many of the teenagers participate because they were exploring and because others were doing it, and they were making so much money doing it. Most of those teenagers interviewed by Dr. Butler, the reporter Garrisey will discover, they didn't grow up to be homosexual. In fact, most of them hadn't had any sexual contact with girls when they were in high school, so they had some mutual masturbation with guys their own age, around 17. And then they heard they could make a little money doing the same thing at the Y or at the public restroom in Julia Davis Park. 
Dr. Butler notes, turning tricks doesn't necessarily make someone a homosexual. The doctor and reporter also find a few of the teenagers have made some particularly large profits because they blackmailed the adults. Tough kids running a scam, some of these kids' friends say to Dr. Butler. One of the teenagers told a homosexual man to use him for money, and when the adult refused, the teenager said, well, if you don't, I'll spread it around that you did anyway, and since everybody knows that you're queer, they'll believe me. In 1965, the reporter, John Garrisey, will interview Dr. Butler. Butler will say, That hard core of kids, supposedly seduced by homosexuals, was actually made up of tough gang members. Technically, they were minors, and the law had to prosecute the adults as the responsible lawbreakers. Of course, the adults should not have been incarcerated in a penitentiary, but that's something else again. As for the kids, they were fully aware of what they were doing. They may have been only 15, 16, and 17, but they were much too developed to be considered children. And as it turned out, some of them became regular criminals. Not that they too should not have gotten some kind of medical care. Either the police didn't bother to think of it, or the probate court didn't know what to do with them, or else there just wasn't the facilities. The reporter, Garrisey, wonders why the state can't afford to fund this rehab program. Why has nothing been done for 10 years, a decade after the doctor advised the state to create resources for these struggling teenagers, both financial and medical resources? If the panic started because of concerns for the children, why was all of the state's power directed toward destroying the homosexual community instead of building up the youth community? Dr. Butler would love to have answers to those questions as well. As his research and interviews continue in late 1955, Dr. Butler finds that the claim of the probation officer, Emery Bess, of 100 boys molested, is quite exaggerated. Nowhere near 100 boys were involved at all, but he did find that many participated in mutual masturbation, and a dozen or so had oral sex with adults. Dr. Butler notes that these adults are sick and in need of help. The reporter, Garrisey, will continue to peel back the layers of this case a decade later. He examines what he can find of the Charles Brokaw case, the freight line worker who pled guilty and got parole for probably naming names. Garrisey looks over this case and notes that it seemed almost too pat, as if a deal had already been made. Three other men, Cooper, Gordon, and Schaefer, had previous records, and they had also been promised psychiatric care if they pleaded guilty, but they were all sent to prison. It's clear by these sentences that the court doesn't even treat homosexuality as a mental illness tended to by a psychiatrist. They treat it only as a crime, something to inform on others, to leverage against your own sentence. At the secret interrogation house on 16th Street, Bill Fairchild's list is running around 500 names. It doesn't matter that the Idaho penitentiary is already very full with its 512 inmates, and there's no way Blaine Evans can prosecute all of these people. But Fairchild moves forward, 
He suspects everyone from the wealthiest lawyers down to the lowliest ditch diggers. Anonymous phone calls come in constantly, but he doesn't rely on them unless the caller is willing to meet in person with credible evidence. People call in saying things like, I've just seen so-and-so sitting by the high school practice field with a funny look on his face. But if a guy gets named a few times, then Fairchild definitely seeks him out. Chief Brandon will go pick up the guy and bring him to the house on 16th Street. And he'll take a seat in the living room while the interrogator, Fairchild, gets the guy comfortable. Fairchild sits at his desk, offers a cigarette to the suspected homosexual, who sits in the opposite chair, looking into that small mirror at himself. And they just talk, casually. Fairchild mentions legal rights and points to the telephone in case the guy wants to call his lawyer, but you know, this is all informal. Bill was great, Chief Brandon will tell the reporter, John Garrisey, later in 1965. The chief says Bill Fairchild gets them to relax, and then he says, Look, we know about you. And before long, the homos would sign a confession or talk a confession into the tape. Then we'd turn them over to Blaine Evans. But boy, they would talk like women. Bill Fairchild will confirm this himself to the reporter, saying, That's just it. They were like women. Look, we didn't have arrest warrants. Nobody had to come into the house if they didn't want to. We didn't force anybody to say anything or even to come. But think a second. What would you do if a cop comes to your door and says, Would you be kind enough to come with me? There's some people who would like to talk to you. Well, you would say, Where's your warrant? And if the cop didn't have one, you wouldn't even let him into the house, right? Now, suppose you're not home, and the cop says the same thing to your wife. What do you think she'll do? Chances are she'll say, Just a minute, and go put on some makeup. Then she'll go with the cop, and when presented with the facts, she'll talk. More than that, she'll start gossiping. Well, before you know it, she'll tell all about her friends and neighbors. Well, homosexuals are like that, perhaps more so. They tend to exaggerate those feminine qualities they admire, like cleanliness, primness, hospitality. My God, these homosexuals would sit in our house and tell us about every guy they could think of. Have you talked to so-and-so, they'd ask. So we had another name to investigate. By the time we were told to stop the investigation, we had so many names with evidence, we could have probably gotten convictions on all of them. Chief Brandon will also tell the reporter that Bill Fairchild knew where to get stoolies. He was a pro, and he didn't need anonymous phone calls. But he says sometimes these anonymous calls do lead to results. For instance, Chief Brandon will recall a school employee getting in touch with him to report a man who sits on the bench outside the school talking to boys almost daily. The local PD put out a stakeout on the bench and traced the guy's license plate somewhere out of town, where their local police also suspected him. One day, while the Boise PD watched him, he offered a kid a ride home, so they pulled him over and asked him what the hell he was doing. He said taking the boy home, but the cop told the kid to get out and not to take rides from strangers. The cop warned the guy, without being specific, and the guy left town immediately. But other than these rare instances, the reporter Garrisey will find that the investigation on 16th Street in that secretly rented house skirted around civil rights. A Mattachine chapter might have been helpful in Boise if it were able to survive such a volatile atmosphere. The secret investigator Fairchild will tell the reporter, 
Maybe there was injustice in Boise. But that's not my doing, he says. Maybe the law should legalize homosexuality. I don't know. I'm an investigator. I don't make the laws. I don't prosecute. Garrisey will note about this interview, there was a kind of detachment that reminded me of an atomic physicist I had once heard insist that he was simply a researcher, not a bomb dropper. Fairchild will continue his story to Garrisey. He'll say, After a while, some of Boise's homosexuals became pretty sharp. There was one fellow, for example, who got himself a radio on which he could pick up our frequency. He was on the drag, that is, he was out cruising, trying to pick up companions. So he'd listen to our broadcasts, find out the guys we were suspecting, wait until we either called off our surveillance or else stopped it, and then he'd drop in on the guy. There was another who used to watch the cars that drove up to the house on 16th Street, then check out the license plates and try to make contact that way. Of course, we learned about these guys and outfoxed them by catching them. Fairchild thinks these men are using the investigation as a cruising tactic to find other homosexuals. He doesn't even consider that they might be following the investigation in order to warn each other. I don't know how many weeks I can keep it up for, but here is this week's count of adults in the United States arrested or sentenced for sex crimes involving children. One Christian pastor, three youth pastors, one rabbi, one small town mayor, one Mormon bishop, and one retiree. Once again, not a single drag queen and not a single person who's transgender. Like, what are we doing? I can tell you guys. In drag, children never even cross my mind. Children don't have jobs. They can't give me any money. I mean, obviously that's a satirical statement, but it's also true. Like, But me having a potty mouth on stage doesn't mean that some drag queen in a full coverage, coverage gown who wants to read to kids at the library, that shouldn't restrict them. The day after Dr. Butler arrived, when the panic is still hot, December 14, 1955, the Boise banker, Joe Moore, pleads guilty. The announcement of his arrest has already shocked the town into greater panic, and, unbeknownst to him, his name was only scribbled into the accusation over the name of Howdy Partner Diner owner Al Travelstead. The banker writes a statement explaining that he didn't commit sodomy, but his lawyer is insisting Joe plead guilty. It's announced the next day in the Statesman, Joe Moore, 54, pleaded guilty in the 3rd District Court Wednesday to a charge of infamous crime against nature. Joe Moore is defended by a fantastic attorney with quite a resume, John A. Carver. He put his career on the line for Moore, and Moore puts his life on the line too. He admits, as Carver recommends, that he is a homosexual, despite being a married man, and he wants psychiatric help. Carver gives a three-hour testimony, explaining, I am not attempting to minimize the seriousness of the charge, but I have a duty to promote an understanding of the type of activity involved, so it will be judged in an atmosphere of understanding. Carver reads a 56-page research paper to the court, which I will read for you here right now. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. One sentence of Joe's lawyer's research for the court says... 
Sexual conduct of the socially distasteful kind characterizes such a large portion of the population that if the law were enforced effectively, there would likely be more people in jail than out. Carver basically tells the whole court that more than half of them are gay and they shouldn't be such narcs. He says, understanding sexual deviation requires the burying of a number of ghosts, born of our prudery and ignorance. Then character witnesses take the stand. A statesman employee who has known Joe Moore since school, a real estate man who has also known Joe Moore for years, Moore's Episcopal minister, and even his own son, who testifies for his dad's good character and says he'll help him get treatment. Joe's nephew, daughter-in-law, and wife all testify for him as a good husband and a loving father. Dr. Cornell even says Joe should get probation. But the jury also has two signed statements against Moore to consider. The first one is written in longhand and is mostly legible. November 3rd, 1955. My name is Lee Gibson. I am 15 years old. I live at 2913 Hazel Boise. I first got acquainted with Al Travelstead. Joe Moore. About June 1955. I do not know what date in June. I know it was a Sunday, about 2 p.m. I was in Julia Davis Park next to tennis courts. He asked me where I was going when he stopped his 1954 Cadillac, which was some shade of green, next to me. I told him I was going over to my girlfriend's. He asked me to ride, which I did. On the way over, he asked me if I drank. I said yes. He had Seagram 7 and handed it to me. He asked me if I would rather get drunk than go over to my girls. I said I guess so. He drove to the shack across the street from Riverside. He asked me how much he should get. I told him I did not know. He went in and returned with two gallons jugs half full of whiskey. Did not taste good. We drove around town, went to the show around 4 o'clock. We got into show and he started playing with me. Unbuttoned first top button. We got out of show around 6 o'clock. Asked me if I had ever been blowed as we were driving around. We then went to Bagus Basin Road, then turned to our left. He parked on top of a hill and started playing with me. I do not remember how long we stayed there. On the way home, I passed out on the way home. As we entered town, he woke me up, took me to Junction Station Cafe, Highway 14 and 44, and had me drink some coffee. He took me to 3113 Alturas and let me out. He said, be quiet about this. Arrived there about 12 midnight. This is a true and correct statement made by me. I have corrected any mistake and initialed them while reading this. It's signed by Lee Gibson and witnessed by the probation officer Emery Bess and private detective Howard Dice, hired by the client. Next to the scribbled-out name of Al Travelstead is an added Joe Moore, initialed LG. The reporter, Garrisey, will look over this document later and note that it does sound as though it was written by a pliant, shy kid, but Lee Gibson was always outwardly very tough. Put a pin in that. But of course, most importantly, this statement didn't originally accuse Joe Moore. The second statement the court must consider against Joe Moore is typed, but also has handwritten corrections. My name is William H. Baker. I am now 17 years old. I am now in the U.S. Army at Fort Carson, Colorado. When I first got acquainted with Joe Moore, I was 16 years of age. This was in the month of January 1955. 
Joe Moore came out to the roller rink at Gowan Field in his green and white Cadillac 1955 model. He came inside and waited until 12 midnight when it let out. I ran outside to catch Clyde Harris, and he had already left for town. Then I went back inside. Joe was still there. I got a Coke and went back outside to see if the bus had left. I found out that it had gone, so I stayed outside with the idea that the boys would be back after me. They did not show up. Then about that time, Joe Moore came out and asked me if I would like a ride home. I said yes. We got into his Cadillac and went back to Boise. He asked me if I wanted to stop by someplace and get something to drink. I said no, that I had to get home. He took me home, the address of 414 East 42nd Street, Garden City. I did not see him again until about a week later, at which time I was walking down the street around 16th and Main, when Joe Moore came by and stopped and asked me if I wanted a ride home. I told him okay. Then he asked me if I wanted some beer. I told him yes, that it would taste good. We then went out to a place on Highway 30 across from Harbor Electric. He went in and brought it back to the car. We drank it in the car on the way back to town. Then he asked me if I wanted to go out. I told him it would be a good idea because I had just got paid. I was working at Shootorium at the time. Then he asked me if I wanted any whiskey. I told him I did not much care for any. Then he told me that he would go and get a fifth anyway. He drove to liquor store across from employment office and got a fifth of whiskey. We rode around town for about an hour then to Riverside Ballroom. We stayed there until it closed. This was on a Saturday night. Then we drove outside of town. Then is when he started to play around with my penis without direct contact with it because I still had my pants zipped. Then I told him to cut it out and take me home. He took me home. Before I got out of the car, he told me he would see me around. I saw him again the next Friday. He came out to the skating rink. He saw me there and asked me if I would like to go out with him and get a jug. This we did. He bought it at the same place. We drove around town and drank it until around one o'clock. He drove out to Harrison Boulevard, then out on a dirt road, and he parked and we killed the rest of the bottle. Then he started playing around. He unbuttoned my pants and played with my penis until it was hard. Then he put his mouth over my penis and worked it up and down until I came off. When we got ready to leave, he put a $10 bill in my pocket and told me to keep still about it. I saw him again the following Wednesday. I was up to the Greyhound bus station. He drove by slow and motioned me out. I got into the car, and Joe Moore gave me several drinks while he was driving around. We saw Lee Gibson on the street. I yelled at him. We drove around the corner and stopped. Lee Gibson got in the front seat next to me. Lee was handed the bottle, and he started to drink. Joe drove around town, and we got some more liquor at liquor store in the west part of town. We drove around for about an hour and a half, and then Joe drove out in the back of the vet's housing project. He parked, and I got into the back seat with Joe Moore. He unbuttoned my pants, and gave me a $10 bill. Lee Gibson was in the front seat and saw this. I got back in the front seat with Lee. We drank some more liquor and I went to sleep. Joe was still in the back seat. The next thing I know, someone was shaking me trying to get me awake and then I noticed we were at my home, 414 East 42nd Street, Garden City. Lee Gibson and I stayed all night at my place. The next time I saw Joe was about two weeks. It was on a Friday night along toward March 1955. My sister and I was out to Bing's dance hall. Joe Moore walked in. I walked over to where he was, and we talked for a little bit. He asked me who I was with, and I told him. He asked me if I would like to go with him. This I did. We got some beer at Savon Food Store. Joe bought it. Then we went out and parked off Bogus Basin Road. We drank all the beer, which consisted of six quarts. He started playing around with me in the meantime. He then went down on me again. He then paid me $10 again, and then took me home. I never seen him since.
I certify that the above statement was voluntarily, no force, threats, or promises were made to me to obtain this statement. The initials WHB are above some corrections. The statement isn't dated. It's signed by a few people, young William Harvey Baker, nicknamed Tex, the private eye, Howard Dice, and another investigator, James C. Hunt. The reporter, Garrisey, will later note some observations that might be worth examining. They seem to have gone to buy liquor at a time when liquor stores were closed. The statement is supposedly dictated under oath, but is badly written and filled with misspellings and errors. Garrisey will write that it was, quote, obviously made to look as if it were written by Baker himself. He'll point out that both Tex Baker and Lee Gibson are made to look naive and innocent, as though they don't know what's going on. As Garrisey will write, quote, when in fact he was a tough juvenile delinquent who knew the score. Two things can be true. Joe Moore can be an upstanding citizen with mobs of character witnesses lining up. And Joe Moore can also be a John. In this underworld, where the deviants are forced to cruise in secret because of stigma and legal consequences, some men perceive any kind of sexual act he performs to be part of his dark secret, permissible to himself because he already knows he is doomed to this underworld, even if his sexual acts are ultimately predatory, possibly harmful, possibly not, depending on the case, but overall a risk for all involved, especially the teenager, in leading to the widespread conflation of two very different people, homosexuals and child molesters. Some of these men are absolutely guilty, plead so, and seek help. But there is an undeniable plot hole in these statements against the banker Joe Moore, other than the fact that Lee Gibson didn't originally even accuse him. But also, Lee Gibson in the first statement claims to have met Joe Moore for the first time in June 1955, while Tex Baker says in his statement that they all hung out together in January or February of 55. A jury or appeals court that noticed these inconsistencies would not rule against Moore, a name scribbled into the statement, if his plea were to be not guilty. But Joe Moore, like everyone else, was pushed to plead guilty for psychiatric treatment because he is a homosexual. The accusation of the boys was false, Joe Moore writes, as I did not commit the act of sodomy on them. I pleaded guilty on the advice of my attorney because he stated, with all the publicity and stink that had been raised, there was nothing else I could do. I knew my life was ruined anyway and threw myself on the mercy of the court. Judge Kolsch postpones sentencing for Joe Moore for one week and takes the lawyer Carver's research home to study until sentencing on December 23rd. Once the Statesman newspaper announces Joe Moore's plea, he's a criminal in the eyes of the town. Everyone now sees a pillar of their society taken down as a child molester or a homosexual. Same thing either way to them. And if an esteemed banker can be guilty, anyone can be guilty. In the span of a few weeks, Distrust spreads through the town. One former student interviewed by the reporter, Garrisey, in 65, will recall a teacher all the kids knew was queer suddenly disappearing one day. Mothers wouldn't even leave their sons alone with a policeman or a postman. One mother will tell Garrisey, To tell you the truth, I didn't stop worrying until both my boys got married. I know marriage doesn't prove anything, but now my boys are no longer my worry. 
That banker was married, wasn't he? And had a boy, too. Disgusting. They should have put him away for life. I don't care what those fancy doctors say. As John Garrisey continues to put the story back together a decade later in 1965, he too will receive anonymous phone calls telling him to drop the investigation. One call is friendly. They say, your motel is going to get ransacked. You'd better hide whatever material you've accumulated. Garrisey will immediately put all of his documents into a suitcase, rush to the airport, and send it to New York. Upon returning to his hotel room, he'll find every drawer turned inside out. Next week, a town hall for adults only, a cadet, and a trip to Mexico. Okay, I'll leave it there for now. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spinoff stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History Archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon, now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center Archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Back next week. Bye. <laughs>